The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 173 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We've got such a fantastic show. Uh, My guest, Eric D. Snyder, is a very well-known writer. He's a movie reviewer, a performer, and uh, just such a talented, incredible guy. I had so much fun getting together with Eric and hearing his life story is just fantastic. You will absolutely love it. And coming up this week in my Latter-day life, it's the happiest place on earth. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, live right here in the Latter-day Live studios, is a guest who, and you don't know this yet, Eric, but I think your name has come up more among our friends than probably any other name, because we have a lot of mutual friends. Eric D. Snyder, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, We it, do have a lot of friends in common, I guess. We have a lot of friends in common, and almost all of them, several of them have been on the show, and all the time, it's, when are you having Eric on? And I said, when the time is right. <laughs> and we finally saw each other recently, and the time was right. So Finally, our, our lawyers worked out the negotiations. <laughs> we were able to make it happen. I'm glad. I'm glad. <laughs> it was a deep, deep negotiation. Yeah, yeah. I still feel like I gave up too much. Well, uh, you know, that, I think that's a sign of a good compromise. We both feel like we lost something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, one of the names that has been bandied about on this uh, podcast many times is the Garen's Comedy Troupe, and Eric D. Snyder is the founder of the Garen's Comedy Troupe. That's true. We're going to get into that in a little bit, but if you go back to episodes with the likes of Lincoln Hoppe, of Ken Craig, of Aaron Johnson, we've had... Johnston. Johnston, what did I say? you said Johnson. Well, you know, I mean... It's it's not like it's a podcast or anything. (laughs) It's not. It's not like we aim for, you know, perfection. But And I should also say that episode was Ken and Katie Craig. Oh, of course. Were both on. They were both um, in the Garens. Yes, and so they were both in the Garens. Anyway, we've had a lot of former Garens. So right. we're going to get into that in a little bit. But first of all, Eric, tell us about your, your younger years, <laughs> your formative years. What was young Eric D. Snyder like? Well, uh, I'm the oldest of six kids. I grew up in Southern California in a town called Lake Elsinore. And... Uh, it was, I had a relatively normal, happy childhood, I guess. Were you um, raised in the church? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, my, uh, my dad was a convert, and my mom's parents were converts. Awesome. So we don't have pioneers or anything, but yeah, but yeah raised in the church. And Lake Elsinore, for, you know, we have guests, or we have guests, we have listeners all around the world. Sure. Lake Elsinore is beautiful because it's California that's not California. Well... It's not what people picture. When you say California, people picture... Malibu. Well, yeah, and beautiful is a strong word. <laughs> Lake Elsinore is beautiful from a distance. I was actually just recently there visiting my parents and, <laughs> and noticing that it is beautiful from because there is a lake there, yes. and, and from a distance, up up on a, on a road overlooking it, you see the lake, and there's mountains on the other side of it. It's yeah, it's beautiful down in it. It's sort of a, a, a dirty brown, scrubby, methy kind of <laughs> town that time forgot. 
Okay. Um, but yeah, it does look nice as you're passing by. <laughs> it has beautiful topography. Yes, yes. Were there no people there, it's a beautiful place. Right, pretty much. Like a lot of places, really. But it's it's not, Lake Elsinore is not what people naturally picture. They picture Los Angeles. Right. Uh, they picture Orange County. Yeah, it's not really Lake Elsinore. Isn't it's not the it's not the desert, quite. But it's not the mountains or the beach either. Yeah, just sort of that that sort of brown scrub brush, kind of. I mean, it's fine. I you know. It's mostly. I mean, part of what it's known for is being one of the most affordable places to live in Southern California. <laughs> Are you looking up like Wikipedia or something? I just know that. I know. <laughs> I'll tell you what about Lake Elsinore. It was the first town in California to have a black mayor. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't until like 1969 or something, wow. like some embarrassingly late <laughs> year. But that's but yeah. awesome. Yeah, that's Yarborough. I, I, Yarborough Park, named for him. That's, that's fantastic. A little bit of trivia, yeah. All right, so growing up, what was Eric D. Snyder like growing up? Super racist. <laughs> Just kidding. Um. Okay. This is part of the problem with having you on the podcast. Eric makes me laugh like almost no one else. So you're you're, you're a good crowd. Oh gosh, um, that's funny. <laughs> I was I was uh, I was a smart kid. I was I was you know like the, 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 one of the gifted kids. Uh, we know that, yeah. Um, and uh, I was fa- like I was I was fairly serious, like like uh, fundamentally like you know I wasn't like a goofy kid, um, but I sort of got interested in comedy. Uh, I started picking up Mad, Mad Magazine when I was about eight or nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then found the Dr. Demento show on the radio. You and I were raised on the same things. My yeah. room was filled with Mad mm-hmm. and Dr. Demento every Sunday night where yep. I lived. Uh, if people, people don't know, Dr. Demento had a syndicated radio show. He was live in L.A., which is where I heard him. Mm. And then he also he taped a, a separate show that yeah. went out on the on the network, syndicated. Uh, and, and he played uh, comedy music. He's where Weird Al Yankovic came from. Like Weird Al got his start. Absolutely. Sending in tapes to Dr. Demento. And so I did that. I, I recorded dumb little songs and skits myself and sent them in, and he played a few of them. Uh, so I'm going to go out on a limb, because yeah. I didn't know you when we were young. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest, I'm assuming that your friends, 90% of them did not understand your sense of humor, <laughs> but the 10% that did thought you were the funniest human being alive. Uh, that's, a, that's, a good, that's a good guess. Um, I think that I, I didn't, it was, I guess it's about junior high, maybe sixth grade where I started like trying to be funny mm. as a, instead of just like reading and listening and watching, but actually like trying to write my own little funny things. Um, but I still wasn't like a class clown or anything. Right. Uh, and so the few friends that I did have thought I was very funny. Yeah. But I didn't have a lot of friends at that point. In high school, it got a little more broad. And then we started having, yeah, there started being people who like, liked me well enough, but didn't quite know what to make of me. Your comedy has always been very smart. Like, you're a very well, smart writer and a very smart, gifted comedian. Um, so I'm just <laughs> assuming that that carried forth from when I mean, you were when you were a, a younger lad. Yeah, I, I suppose. So you become a teenager, you get into high school. What was life all about then? Um, well... I I had always wanted to be a writer, and it was in high school that I started to think of journalism specifically, newspapers and stuff. Um, I had always like I had done like little dumb school papers in you know sixth grade or whatever. Yeah. Um, but now I started getting really interested in it. So that and then drama. The end of my sophomore year, uh, the drama department did a production of Greece, and I saw it and just fell in love with the theater. <laughs> 
uh, was smitten. Uh, and, uh, and Greece will do that to you. I mean, it if will. there's one I, you play know, in high school, yeah. it's, it's Greece. I mean, I that's actually, the best. I actually kind of hate Greece now, but it, it was my gateway, my gateway musical. So I got involved with, with uh, drama, and uh, you know, that was a big thing, junior and senior years. Um, I, was, I started playing the piano in there. I had taken lessons when I was five from my mom. Um, and played for like a year, and then got frustrated and quit. But you're a very was. talented pianist. Well, uh, thank you, but I wasn't yeah. at first. Uh, that came more in high school. Yeah, I did. Like I quit when I was six or so, um, and then when I was about thirteen, uh, decided I wanted to pick it up again. I'll tell you why. Oh, this is the church thing. This is the churchy podcast. You'll yes, like this then. You can talk about the church. We right. love talking about the church. Well, uh, at church we sang the hymn "True to the Faith," mm. which I'd never heard before, and I loved it. I thought I would learn how to play that. Uh, and so, you know, I remembered the basics of how to read music from when I was five and six. And so I just started practicing it just one measure at a time. I didn't realize that's, I think it's, it may literally be the hardest song in the book Is to it play. Really? It's certainly in the top five for hardest. So it took me like six months to learn how to play it. Drove my family crazy on our <laughs> crappy old piano. Um, but then learned it and then chose another hymn and learned that one and just did, I, so I learned how to play by learning the hymns. Mm. Um and then I also listened to, on the Dr. Meadow show, I became acquainted with Tom Lehrer. Sure. Tom Lehrer would be most familiar to people for uh, uh, poisoning pigeons in the park. Yes. Every, uh, every Sunday you'll see my sweetheart and me as we're poisoning Indeed. pigeons oh, in and, the park. And the elements. People have heard the elements where he sings the names oh, yeah. of all the chemical yep. elements yep. Uh, to, the, to, to a Gilbert and Sullivan tune. Or I guess just a Gilbert tune. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, uh, and so I was heavily influenced by Tom Lehrer. I got his albums; they were they were uh, reprinted or re-released, and uh, and I would listen to it and listen to the piano, and I would like play air piano, and like my goal was to be able to play the piano like him. Uh, he just had that fun jaunty yeah. style, and I I coveted that, and so that was that's what I was chasing, and so I started learning uh, chord theory and other stuff, and and just gradually learned and learned and practiced and practiced, and because I've seen you sit down and just start playing. Like like crazy, like just mixing things up, and you're very talented. I will Thank say, uh, as one who is literally tone deaf, like I've been diagnosed. Really? Tone deaf? Yeah, I've talked about it on the show before. I am literally tone deaf. Uh, True to the Faith is the single worst song mm. for hymn-wise for someone who's tone deaf to sing. So it's interesting. It's so hard to play. Can, yeah, it's hard to sing, too. And it's because there is a note that you have to hold, which is the... No. Yeah, that's right. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and at that point, all sound goes away and everybody's just staring at me. So I don't sing true to the faith. I don't remember the last time I sang it in church. Like now it's been yeah, it's Why been is it not played decades. more often? I don't know. Yeah, What's wrong with kids today? Let us, <laughs> let's bring back true to the faith. It's a whole campaign. True so, to the faith.org. So that was me in high school. It was Mad Magazine and the Dr. Demento show. Uh, learning to play the piano. Um, being uh, and watching, you know, lots of comedy Saturday Night Live and David Letterman and stuff. And like, if I and I, when I'm writing a song, I first think of Tom Lehrer writing something in in print. Yeah, I think of Dave Barry. Remember Dave Barry? Oh yeah, for sure, of course. He was, I discovered him in about seventh grade. He was a newspaper columnist, syndicated, who wrote yeah. very funny columns. Very funny. And that was a huge. That was I mean, that's where Snipe Remarks came from. Was was uh, Dave Barry? So you graduate high school. What came next? Um. Well, we went out to dinner, I think. Yeah. And uh, I didn't mean literally. Oh. <laughs> um, 
Well, I, sh- I should also mention that my senior year in high school, we did a show, the drama department did a show of sketches, comedy sketches. Okay. Um, and it sprang from the year before at the annual uh, drama awards that we had. I had written a couple of sketches that we did at the show, kind of very specific to the school and the drama, you know, inside jokes and stuff. And they got over like gangbusters. And so Mr. Duke, the drama guy, uh, who was like 27, 28, like barely older than us. He was great. Loved it. <laughs> Uh, he asked me, he said, do you want to write like a whole sketch show? And I was like, sure. So we got me and several other students, but like 80% of it was me. <laughs> and, uh, and we did the show. It was called The Big Show. Uh, and I was in it too, one of the cast members. And it was lots of fun. And so I had this, uh, this, this uh, taste for sketch comedy. And then I saw the Groundlings in LA. Mm, right. Great comedy troupe who do sketches and improv. The biggest. Yeah, yeah, the best. Them and Second City. Yeah. Kind of the two. The Groundlings is kind of where all the actors get their their big Yeah, like story. so many SNL people came yeah, from there. Sure. And, uh, saw them, and so between that and the big show, I was thinking sketch and improv. And then I had a friend who was a year ahead of me, and he'd gone off to his first year of college and came back, and he said that he'd auditioned for his college's comedy troupe. And I was going to BYU that fall, and I thought, oh, I should audition for BYU's comedy troupe. I just sort of assumed that was something all colleges had. And then I got to BYU, and son of a gun, there was no comedy troupe. None. It turns out. None. Uh, and so I, I decided to start one. Yeah. How did that process come together then? I mean, how do you start a comedy troupe? This would have been... It was 1992. Fall 92. Okay, 92. Uh, I don't know how you would do it now, because they uh, <laughs> they sort of changed all the rules. Sure. Uh, kind of because of us. No big deal. Just because of things we did, they changed the rules. Um like, I, I figured out, I determined that the only way to, to be able to perform on campus was to be either to pay, like, an exorbitant rental fee or to be a campus club. If we were a, cl- a student club, we could, you yeah. know, use the rooms. So, we had to become a club. So, I got I got a, another another guy there in the dorms with me uh, named Braden, and we got one of uh, uh, one of my teachers, Marie Hafen, wife of Bruce C. Hafen. Mm, okay. She was one of my writing teachers. She, she uh, agreed to be our club advisor. Which was just someone to sign the on the thing. Right. And she had no involvement whatsoever. Yeah, yeah, I'll sign off on it. Yeah, and so we've I, we created a student club, and one function of this club was to do a show of sketch and improv every Friday on on campus. And so, te- since it was a club, anyone could join technically. Um, so the way we got around that was that yes, anyone can be in the Garens, but then within the Garens club members. From there, we have auditions to determine who will actually be in the troop. show. Yeah. It wasn't an issue. Like, nobody ever like, demanded to be in the club <laughs> or anything like that. Um, that's how we did it. We were, we were a student club. And, uh, and the, our weekly show was a fundraiser. And so like, we weren't doing anything that was against the rules, but we were doing things that clubs hadn't done before. Like Clubs didn't usually have a fundraiser every week. Yeah. Um, you also lovingly... Poked a whole lot of fun at BYU culture. Yes. Some of it was loving. Much of it was loving. Yes. Most of it was loving. Most of it was loving. Or at least, uh, let's call it appreciative of, yeah. our, of BYU culture. Our first semester was uh, winter 93, the beginning of 93. And we did a lot of BYU and Mormon culture kind of stuff. For sure. So, so I didn't join until right after you left on your mission. You and I right. were ships in the night right i missed you by literally a few months i spent my entire time at the garens just hearing about oh eric wrote this and when <laughs> eric gets back and you know this was eric's part or whatever mm-hmm. um but talk us through the first 
first few performances of the Garens, like how nerve wracking was it? Something that you put together to then bring that to the stage, and also where at BYU did you start out performing? We our first place was uh, 2084 JKHB, the Jesse Knight Humanities Building, which mm. I think at least has a different name. That building, I know. I know, I know that that room is no longer there. Okay. That, that part of it is no longer there. But 2084 JKHB was a you know, big classroom. I think 300 seats or so. Um, we had been practicing the, the sketches for like two months, a month and a half. Um, and, and, and I remember we, did a, we had a dress rehearsal um, the night before that went badly. Uh, and it's always the, the old adage is if you have a terrible dress rehearsal, you have a great opening night. <laughs> um, and that's actually what happened. Oh, that's great. Yeah, there was no ironic twist. We, we, uh, the f- first show, it was full. Uh, the first show we did was free. We were smart enough to do it for free. Oh, so we packed the smart. house, yeah. get them hooked, and then start charging them. Yeah. We charged a dollar. We did start charging, <laughs> by the way. Tickets were a dollar. Big money. Yeah. Uh, anyway, it was, we did from the first sketch. It was, the first sketch was a Jeopardy parody. And so it starts with the host saying, uh, this is Jeopardy. And the audience like cheered along, like going along with the game, you know, being part of it. And so right from the start, it, it, it uh, went over well. Uh, yeah, just just uh, knocked the house down the first show, uh, and then we did it again the next night, Friday and Saturday, and Saturday was you know almost as good. Uh, and then from there, it, uh, so we, we we got lucky that right out of the gate we uh, it, it went well enough. Um, we didn't have any big technical problems or, or mistakes or anything. Uh, Do you think that in today's internet age, and with everything else that that students have access to, that a Garen's comedy troupe could have the cultural impact it had then? Uh, I mean, probably not just because uh, there's so much competition, except that it, if, I mean, we were the, we would probably still only be the only ones doing sketches about BYU and, and Mormon culture. Yeah. Um, so there would be other, other sources of comedy for students, but there wouldn't probably wouldn't be anything else that was doing that. And that's why, that's why it was big that first semester was because, like the, the, not that the sketches were necessarily great, but we, the jokes we were making right. were the kind of jokes that you'd only ever heard in the back row of Sunday school before. Yeah, and now here we were doing it on stage officially at BYU. Yeah, and so that made it seem funnier. I'm, I'm sure. So for our audience that maybe doesn't understand what we're really talking about here, is there a sketch that comes to mind that is so very much the Garens? I have a couple that come to mind that are classics uh, from that. From that for that early period, um, the the big thing that first semester uh, was Cody Judy. Oh yeah, the Marriott Center ordeal. Yeah, as it was known. So as this... a reminder for our audience, Cody Judy was the one who jumped up on stage when uh, President Hunter mm-hmm. was speaking and said, "I have a bomb. You need to read this." Right, right. And then everybody started singing hymns, and yes. he was and, taken and down. February seventh, nineteen ninety three. Turned out that his wow, you remember the day? It was a big date. I was there. It was many like the place was packed. Marriott Center was packed, and we all we thought he had a gun or a bomb. Wait, like, you were in the Marriott Center yeah, for that? Yeah. You actually saw this? I was there with my yes, with my own two eyes. I, you've got to be kidding! I was on my mission when oh, it yeah. happened. We got word like weeks and weeks later down in Chile. Yeah, and I was up in up in the the nosebleed seats. So where I was, we couldn't hear what he was saying. Like we could see that he had you know commandeered the scene, and he had something in his hand that to us up there looked like a gun or a detonator or something. Um, and we couldn't hear what he was saying to President Hunter. And then, yeah, uh, people started singing, which, which uh, distracted him, um, partly because he, he, part of his manifesto was that he was supposed to be the new prophet. Yeah. And we started singing, we thank you, God, for a prophet. 
which must have like made him for a second think, oh, it's working. <laughs> They're um, also thankful for me. But anyway, it was very tense and scary. And then he got tackled. And it turns out he didn't have a bomb or anything. He had books. In he had, his he had a book of Mormon, yeah. a B-O-M, a bomb. Yeah. He had nothing. He was harmless. <laughs> he was a nut. He was yeah. a nut. Yeah. And so once the tension was broken, after a couple of days, we we're like, we can do sketches about this. Like, because it, it, once it was no longer a scary thing, but a funny thing. Sure. And so, like, that very, it was a Sunday, and then the very next, that Friday, we had a couple of sketches. And the, my favorite one was, um, it, was the, it was the Cody Judy story showing him as a kid uh, when he <laughs> takes his Sunbeam class hostage. <laughs> and he's got, uh, he's got a jar full of bugs and a hammer. He says, if you don't, if you don't do whatever, I'm going to smash this jar and let the bugs out. And then it turns out that the bugs are just raisins. And it's not even a hammer. It's just a bunch of Legos wrapped together. Um, and everyone, and everyone sings Jesus wants me for a sunbeam uh, instead of thinking God for a prophet. It's a uh, great sketch. It, it killed. Did you uh, ever get backlash from anyone? Did you ever get the people going, that is not appropriate? I'm, I'm sure there were people who felt that way. Oh, um, Eric, that but is they, so they didn't, funny. They didn't tell us that. I'm sure, I'm sure they did. And if there had been an internet then, there would have been maybe forum posts or something. But we didn't know. We didn't hear, get a lot of negative feedback, personally. And we did, we did several Cody Judy related things that semester and so he was like he was like the Dan Quayle of of BYU comedy that was a current reference then love it yes the Dan Quayle the potato man so that's what I think of that first semester is that and a whole new ward yeah a whole new ward ward. so there was a lot of music there was actually a lot of musical parody hearkening back to your Dr. Demento days right and yeah in the first semester we only we didn't do a lot of was that the only parody we even did the first semester when did Sweet Home Provo, Utah come that out? That was later. That, that was, was later? when I was on my mission, yeah. Okay. A whole New Ward, which I didn't even write, or I co-wrote it. Mostly uh, Julia and Jenny wrote it. Um, might have been our only parody, but it was the first Disney thing that we did, and we ended up doing many of those. And it was a big hit because it was a Disney thing, and so the BYU crowd loved it. Right. It hit all the quadrants for and our And the idea is, be, instead of a whole new world right, it's a, from Disney, from Aladdin, it was a whole new ward. A, a girl who's... We, did, oh, we staged it as if it was the Young Ambassadors, a really cheesy performing group <laughs> where a girl's just moved into a new ward and her home teacher comes over, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, love it. That's actually a really good, typical mm-hmm. Garen's Fair yeah, that's, thing. Yeah, it's, it's pretty Before, representative. So we're going to circle back around to the Garens because you got home from your mission and I left. Right. But one of the things that I will say while you were on your mission, um, we'll get to your mission in a minute, but the Garens, the cultural impact of the Garens was unbelievable. And even to the point that Johnny B's Comedy Club was a really big deal. I was doing stand-up right, there. Johnny B's. And Johnny, the owner of Johnny B's, he almost didn't want to book me because I had been part of the Garens. And he was like, that's, oh, that comp- right? that's competition. He saw that as competition well, from a very packed uh, comedy club. But the other thing that's amazing, I wasn't a BYU student, but I would show up. And before, there there would be two hours before a line. We were at the Joseph Smith building. No, okay. not the Joseph no. Smith. Yeah, we were at the J. Reuben Clark uh, Law Building. And it was a huge theater. It was packed, yeah. Eric. There were people lined up around the block. They knew who we were. I'd go out <laughs> to give somebody passes or something, and people would shout out my name. Yeah, there yeah. was a crazy huge following. All right, so yeah. this all leads up to you leaving on a mission. I do know that, right? Yes, because <laughs> I I joined while you were on your mission. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so after after that first semester of performing, then I school year was over, and I went home and. That fall went on a mission to the Philadelphia Mission, and um, 
yeah, I left the Garens in the hands of Lincoln and Ken. Uh, and I was a, I guess I was a normal missionary. I mean, for the most part, but I did do some songs. Uh, uh, I did, I did a song uh, at both of the mission conferences each year, just about mission life and making jokes and making fun of people and stuff. Did you maintain writing otherwise outside of those songs, like creative writing or did you just put that on the shelf? No, not really. I mean, I, I got some of that out of my system, writing letters to people. Like that was fun for me. And that was a way to, to, uh, express myself. Um, and I would I would write down sketch ideas yeah. when I thought of them. Um, How was your mission? It was it was uh, good. It was it was yeah. It was like the best eight months of my life. <laughs> Zoing. Um, Hello. No, it was it was good. It was difficult for a few reasons. One is that I was I was depressed but un, undiagnosed and so sort of up and down. Mood wise and everything. Had you struggled with depression earlier that you no, recognized? Not or? that I recognized. So it kind of kicked in on your mission. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and and being away from well, I've been away from home for you know, at BYU, but this was you know away away. Yeah, uh, one friend all the time. Yeah, one friend all the time, uh, and I was gay as heck, and yeah. uh, and and not out and hadn't told anybody. Um, but it was when I was on my mission that uh, actually I was with my first companion. Uh, who looked like Superman, by the way. Yeah. Uh, it was Putting a, a young gay elder with someone who looks like Superman is true. Yeah, is, yeah this, this surfer guy from Ventura, California. Yeah. Um, uh, and it, my mission president uh, called me in once, and, and he, he, uh, he said that my companion had expressed some concern that he thought that I might be, I don't remember my mission president's exact words, but, but that I might yeah. be gay or attracted to men or something. And this is the first time, like I had never spoken of it to anybody. I right. only, within the maybe the previous year or so, even addressed it in my prayers. Um, uh, I, before that, I just I just didn't acknowledge it, didn't think of it. Yeah. And so now it was about to be about to be said out loud, and so it was right. So it was it was a part. Of, it was a sense that there was a sense of relief of like, oh, this is real now. Like we're we're going to do this. All right we're here we go. We're dealing with this. It's yeah. not just in my head now. Yeah. Off off we go. Yeah. And so I said yes. As a matter of fact. Um, and he was very good about it, much better than he should have been. He was a he'd barely ever left Price, Utah, except to be a mission president. Yeah. He never had a tostada. He'd never heard the word tostada before. <laughs> I remember that specifically. He was just a just a you know, a nice yeah. guy, but not someone that you would expect to be like down with the gays. And in nineteen ninety three. Or nineteen ninety three, yeah. Three, yeah, four. Nineteen ninety three, ninety four was a very different world than twenty twenty one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, this he, was not something we spoke of a lot. Right. And he was he was a manly man, a football player. He'd been a bricklayer and Mister Utah bodybuilder at one point, um, but he was very good. He didn't. He was not unduly uh, prejudiced or anything. So did you open up to him about? Yeah, it? Did I you told say, him. Yeah, I, I, I said, I yeah, this is, this is something I've, I've struggled with. I said, you don't need to worry. I'm not going to do anything. Because um, uh, he said something about that being his concern. You know, uh, how is this going to be with you being with other missionaries? And I said, don't worry, nothing's going to happen. Uh, you don't have to worry about that. And he said, okay. And he. Uh, you know, check up uh, with me now and then when we had interviews, just ask how things were going. But we didn't really talk about it after that. Yeah, um, and it wasn't an issue, and that was that was the end of it as far as as far as he was concerned. So going back, at what age did you realize you were gay? Like, it, or was it is it an I evolutionary was, thing for you? That yeah, I mean, little I was, things built up. I was I was always like curious about about other boys, um, and then when I uh, entered adolescence and began to have uh, sexual feelings of any kind, they they tended that direction, but they tended in all directions. 
um, at that point. Like it was sort of like like I sort of like girls too, and the thing with the boys would just sort of like I said I didn't I didn't consciously think about it. I yeah. would just I would just avoid directly thinking about it. In the back of my mind, it was a thing that I figured would go away at some point. Or we've had guests on the show, yeah. uh, gay guests who have talked about feeling the need to pray away the gay. Yeah. Did you go through a time like that? Well, yeah, I would, I would, before I ever put a name to it, I would, I would, when I prayed, I would ask, I would ask the Lord to help me uh, with my temptations is how I referred to mm. it. Um, You're asking to have the desire taken away. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that, and that was that was what I was hoping for, up through my mission and, and a couple of years after my mission. Before I, I realized that that uh, that praying for it to go away was asking for the wrong thing. Yeah, it doesn't really work that way, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, we thought it did, and maybe it has worked that way for some people. I'm not going to say that anybody's sure. path isn't right, but but in, your personal experience in general, it's not. And that's I think not how you're it's right. Generally, out. that's not kind of how it works. Yeah, um, and unfortunately, in, in those days, the church recommended like getting married as a as a way of fixing it. Yeah. And that was that was bad advice. And I'm yeah. glad they don't give that advice anymore. Yeah, there are select people who, for whom they say that has worked for them. Sure. As broad advice, the yeah. church now recognizes that's right. not and great. It says advice. don't do that. Yeah. Um yeah, and so the, but that was the thinking at the time back in those days. This was a different century, Sean, you understand. It, it was a different century, but it was also <laughs> 3 centuries ago in how we perceive Homosexuality so much generally. has changed yeah. uh, about sure. about uh, gay rights and gay culture and everything inside and outside of the church. So much has changed just right. in the last ten years. It's been amazing. Sure, um, but yeah. So my mission was fine. I mean, it was it was a struggle at times. Yeah, uh, with this companion or that. But um, like the companion, I, w- I had the longest. He was my eternal companion. <laughs> uh, was was a, a nice, sweet guy. One of the most physically un- unattractive people I've ever known. And that yeah. was the one I was with the most. So I felt like that was a, a blessing or something, like a, a, a relief. I, I a don't reprieve. think we can overstate how difficult at that age <laughs> it would be to be a gay missionary. To be, you're always supposed to be with this guy. You're, you're supposed to stay guy. away from girls. Yes, go and don't be go with near this guy. Always be within sight of this guy. Be within <laughs> ten feet of where they right. shower. Exactly, all the time. All the yeah. time. And and then sleep four feet away from them. Right. I try to transpose that to having a girl companion, but don't have bad thoughts, don't act, don't. Can you at imagine? At that age, with yeah, that type that. of raging hormone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Eric, that's that's a lot, <laughs> and I think a, a burden. And I believe from everything I've read and seen that mission presidents are much more equipped to deal with this now. Yes, that it's it's I've. Yes, I've I've heard now that there are missionaries who are sort of openly, you know, it's openly known that they are that they are gay, um, yeah. and that's fine. And and like I can't, I can't even imagine there are other missionaries who, like looking back, I now know were gay, but there certainly were none that I that I knew of at the sure. time. And you certainly wouldn't have been open about it with everybody. The yeah, way no, 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 can be now. Yeah, yeah. So you get home from your mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, you went back to BYU. Back to BYU, the fall of. It was middle of the fall semester, 95, so I didn't start school again until 96, but mm. yeah. And then uh, you went back to the Garen's Comedy Troupe. Yes. You also started writing for the BYU paper. Uh, yeah, that that wasn't until 97. Okay. Uh, but yeah, eventually I got, I was a journalism student. Yeah. And so writing for the paper was, was 
part of that. So I want to talk about this a little bit mm-hmm. because one of my favorite things about you was a massive controversy you started when you were writing for the paper. I can't wait to hear which one. It had to do with delivering a pizza. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't think I'd remember this 20 years later. I'm a little surprised. We have not talked about this in literally 21, 22 years. I still remember it. It Yeah, it's when I was, it was right after my mission. I was delivering pizza for Little Caesars, and I delivered pizza to the home of Merrill J. Bateman, who was then the president of BYU. So you deliver pizza to the president of BYU. Right. And? And he, I don't remember the details. Did he not give me a tip at all? I don't like remember. A, I was trying to remember this morning tip. that it was either like he ordered 10 pizzas and tipped you a buck or something or didn't tip you at all. Yeah, it was something very, very wrong. But whatever. it was something that you felt and justifiably you felt that the tip, that the, the people tip, need to know. And this was, you decided that this was appropriate to put mm-hmm. in the BYU paper. Here, let's see. I would, I, we, I would need to look this up. My, I think that it actually ended up appearing in the Daily Herald where I was freelancing. You are right. I think you're right. I, don't I think tried to put in the, the Daily BYU Universe yes. and the Daily Universe wouldn't because uh, this is this was it was like it was summertime so the paper didn't come out every day and so there was a there was a gap of when the next issue would be and somehow Bateman had found out about it and it was one thing we printed it without him knowing but now that he knew about it we couldn't print it Got so that it. so I took it to the Herald instead that's right and so the Daily Herald which is the newspaper of record for all of Utah County. Sure. So you publish a story about not getting tipped by the president of BYU while you're going to BYU. Yes, that's true. Eric, I love it so much. So what was the blowback from that that you recall? I got a couple of angry phone calls. I remember there was someone in my ward whose dad was some kind of church muckety-muck who expressed his extreme disapproval. Um, (sighs) And then I... See, the thing was, like, later on, when I started writing snide remarks for the BYU paper, then I started having run-ins with President Bateman anyway. And I remember early on in that process, when he was objecting to many things I was writing, he told the faculty advisor to tell me that it was not because of the pizza thing. That he was not (laughs) holding a grudge over that. And I believe him. I don't think he did hold a grudge over that. Um, I'm I'm picturing this very... Ferris Bueller Ed Rooney relationship <laughs> is what that's, it conjures. A little, that's that's fairly accurate. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So you started writing your own uh, your own column um, that was uh, snide remarks. Right. As a reminder, your name is Eric D. Snyder. Right. So snide remarks. Becomes... And I wasn't even the one who thought of that. Someone, a friend, had to think of it for me. You're kidding. Yeah, it had been my name my whole life. And you, it, the writer, didn't think of Snyder remarks. No, like I knew the Snyder connection, like, a, you know, yeah. I'm Snyder than you, but it had not occurred to me to, to yeah. call, call him Snyder remarks. So this carries on. You, you've you written Snyder remarks for however many years now. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that started at BYU. But, yeah, started at BYU and officially began in the fall of 97. And then, yeah, wrote it there for the BYU paper. And then when I graduated and went to the Herald, took it with me over there. And then when I... Left the Herald under suspicious circumstances. I took it online, <laughs> freelance, and uh, yeah, kept writing it for a long time. So, I guess I never officially stopped. I just don't do it you anymore. Just don't do it now, right? But if All I right. think of one to write about, I will. And, and I'll say for our our audience, you were willing to call out BYU culture, culture, 
Yeah. Not doctrine, not, you know, anything like that. But at the time, there wasn't a lot of that. There's a lot of that now. It was, yeah, it was kind of the Garen's thing again of, of making these jokes and, and getting very specific about BYU campus and BYU culture. Um, yeah, and, and I think making jokes and raising objections that people had had before, but they hadn't seen in the, in the official school paper. Um, yeah. So again, it was just sort of just, I guess, just being the, getting there first probably made it seem better than it was. So let's circle back around uh, being at BYU mm-hmm. now as a gay man. Mm-hmm. Um, BYU has plenty of built-in pressure of date someone of the opposite sex, yes. get married to someone of the opposite sex. Right. There are plenty of vehicles built into that end as well at BYU. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did you deal with that with the rest of your time at BYU? And then how open were you? Who were you open with at that time? Uh, not really a, at all anyone. Um, in, in the fall of 97, right when I started writing signed remarks, uh, I came out to a friend for the first time um, who also was gay, uh, which I had figured out, which is why I felt safe coming out to him. Yeah. Um, and so then, you know, we both, we were both the only ones who knew that he started to tell more people. So then I was in the awkward position of being friends with him and some of his friends, and his friends knew about him. But didn't know about me. Yeah. So they think that I'm one of you know one of their fellow straight friends of of Rob the gay. And I started seeing a counselor through BYU counseling, uh, with the idea of trying to at least minimize it. Maybe not make it go well together, mm. but minimize it to where I could you know get married and, and be a normal person. You were still thinking I have a heterosexual path. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Basically. Um, and so I started seeing this counselor for a little while. Uh, but I really wasn't – I came out to a few people, to a few friends here and there, and I had a few a few good friends who were very supportive and helpful to me at a time like when nobody else knew and, and everything. Um, I'm very grateful for those friends. Uh, but I okay. was, certainly was not out like yeah. at all. So basically, I mean, you're kind of left with confusion. Yeah. I want to want this path, but I don't want this path. Right. So I, would, I, I would go on dates path, and stuff sometimes. I don't want to want that path. Right, yeah. Like yeah. I, I would go out with girls sometimes and tried to like girls, and I did, yeah, I did like I kissed a girl, I kissed a couple of girls during that time. How was that? Uh, it was fine. <laughs> uh, you know, you've done it. <laughs> you've done kissed it. a girl, right? Yeah, twice. But yeah. <laughs> but uh, but for me, it was much I, more I, than I, fine. It was like the greatest I, thing on earth, and yeah, I couldn't wait to tell everyone I knew. It wasn't it wasn't that, but yeah. Um, but sure. yeah, but um, okay, yeah. So you graduate from BYU, mm-hmm. degree in journalism. Yeah. Did this lead right away? I mean, you were doing freelance for for uh, I was freelancing for the Herald the already. Herald. Yeah. Theater reviews and, and CD reviews. And then did you did you end up getting a job? I got hired right out of BYU. Yeah, I got hired full time like right immediately after graduation. And what were you covering for the Daily Herald? I was when I started. It was I was half time a features writer and half time on the copy desk, but that only lasted a few months. Then I was full time. Features writer. Yeah. Um, so talk about what that is. What What is a feature writer? Well, uh, Were you most, assigned things? Mo- I got assigned a lot of things. I wrote a lot of stupid things like, uh, uh, <laughs> this old lady turns 100 and she's lived in Springville her whole life. Go interview her. And here's somebody who, who, paints, uh, who paints saws, old saws, to look like uh, uh, pastoral scenes. <laughs> Go talk to that guy. Uh, uh, you know, human interest stories. Uh, things like that. And sometimes so some funny. fun things. And then, but I started. I wanted to do movie reviews, and we yeah. didn't. We didn't have a. There wasn't a movie critic 
for the paper. We didn't really run wire reviews. So it was sort of an opening there. And, and the managing editor said, he was basically said, I don't care what you do. Sure. I don't care. Like, I'm not, we're not going to pay you extra for it, but you want to write reviews? Sure. So, we so st- you were salaried. You weren't paid by the piece. Right. Yeah, I was salaried. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just started writing. I was seeing movies anyway, so I started writing reviews and putting them in the paper. And then over time, as there was turnover with the managing editors, eventually got to where the managing editor thought that that was like actually my job to write movie reviews. <laughs> Created your own job. That's Basically, great. yeah. Yeah, it worked out pretty well, the way that evolved. How long did you stay in Provo? Uh, until 2004. So you had a long run. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. You were there for a few years. Did you stay at the Daily Herald the whole time you were in Provo? No, I was there until 2003. Uh, and then after that, I got fired, and it's a long story. Um, Is it a good story? Uh, not really. All right. It makes me look bad. All right, then don't so, tell it's it. It's not a good story, yeah. no. That's not a good story, uh, then. I, I screwed up. Hubris. I flew too close to the sun. <laughs> uh, so I got fired, and then... Um, Stayed for another year, and then I, I had been living in. A, I had a condo in Orem, and then I moved to downtown Salt Lake City for a year, and then after that, moved to Portland. Right. And uh, what took you out to Portland? I uh, I didn't have any reason to be in Utah anymore because I wasn't working at the paper, and I had never intended to live in Utah in the first place. I was a Southern California boy. Yep. Um, and so uh, I had a couple. I had a couple of friends in Portland. I had visited and liked it, and just sort of wanted something new. And so I thought. Sure. So moved to Portland. What uh, What did you end up doing for work up in Portland? Freelancing. Just kept freelancing. Um, I wrote. I did write for a couple of the the local papers, the uh, like alternative weekly weeklies, um, movie reviews, uh, but mostly online stuff. And then movie reviews became a big thing, and you suddenly started getting published everywhere. Like it would surprise me. <laughs> In that, not surprising because of your talent, just surprising that I know someone. I would literally just look up online, oh, let me look up a review. Right. I'd read it, I'd get to the byline, and I'd go, oh, Eric wrote this. I'd pop up where you least expect. Were you getting invited for, like, full big premieres and whatnot? No, because I, I was in Portland, and so there would, I'd get invited to the local, you know, the press screenings of the movies, but the big premieres, of course, yeah. in, in L- L.A. Were um, the press screenings fun? Uh, they were they were better than public screenings because the public wasn't there. <laughs> um, so people are actually quiet. We we much preferred because the, right the other the thing about when they have the evening the promo screenings where they fill the house with with like they give out tickets on the radio or whatever yeah. and they'll tape off a row for the critics and about half our screenings were like that. Mm. Um, and the thing is, they fill every seat, and it's. F- Every seat is full of people who are excited because they're seeing a movie early for free. Yeah. They're a little agitated because they've been waiting outside for hours, often <laughs> baking in the sun. And they just tend to be just uncouth and loud and it's just yeah. crowded and hot and eh. Like you got you got used to it, but it was not it was not an ideal movie going situation. It was better when it's press only where it's just, you know, six or seven people in the theater. Everyone's well behaved. So if film reviewers are generally there's got to be that, like, you know, nine out of ten hated this movie, but there's always the one guy. The contrarian, who went, yeah. Go see this with your family. It's the greatest film ever. <laughs> you know, it's the best thing since Police Academy 6. Like, that one guy who just loves everything. Oh, movie. the guy who loves everything, yes. Yeah, the guy who loves everything. Right. Does that guy get invited to more, like, more that, screenings? That, that guy gets invited not to more screenings, but he gets invited on junkets. 
The junkets are where they'll fly you out to L.A. or New York, put you up in a fancy hotel, give you a per diem. Uh, they show you the movie, although that's sort of an afterthought, uh, and then have you interview the cast and whatever. Um, and so a lot of those people are, t- are, are film critics on TV. They're, they're TV personalities. Yeah. It's a very unethical situation. Right. We're going to pay you right, to have to the studio. out. The, and the, to... the reputable outlets, like the New York Times or Entertainment Weekly, they would pay their reporters own way. They would, they would pay the person's expenses to go to the junk and do the interviews because you can't be taking freebies from the studio for yeah, crying out loud. Sure. Um, and so I only, I only went on one of those and I went on it and wrote a thing making fun of it and didn't get invited anymore. <laughs> You had to as, know. As you would expect. Oh you yeah, no, I knew. Know. No, I went. I only went. I went so that I could so I could see for myself what it was like and know that I was right to avoid it. So and, what was the movie? Do you remember? Yeah, it was. Uh, it was uh, Oliver Stone's World Trade Center. And Nicholas Cage. Was he in that? Wasn't he? No, he was I'll in the other one. Wasn't he? I don't know. Maybe I have he was no in this. idea. He wasn't at the interviews anyway. Michael you didn't, you Michael didn't... Pena and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh. Um. Uh, and I went, I, the junket was in Seattle. For some reason, they're doing some regional junkets instead of all in LA. And so, yeah, Paramount flew me from Portland to Seattle, put me up in a super ritzy hotel, gave me some cash. Nicolas Cage was the main star. He was. Well, he wasn't on the junket. He is my favorite actor of all time. Uh, yeah, he wasn't there. Oliver Stone was there. I did talk to Oliver Stone. Just roundtable interviews. I didn't have yeah. any one-on-ones. But then you made fun of the junket itself? Yeah. Just made fun of the whole. Eric is like the least surprising like, I, thing well, I've yeah. ever heard. Well, I mean, yeah, exactly. If they had what would known you... you, they would not have invited you to this. Exactly. It's That's their ex- own fault. Exactly. You knew what I was when you picked me up. <laughs> yes. All right. So you're living this life of, you know, reviewing <laughs> movies, single guy in Portland. At mm-hmm. some point, uh, I know from conver- our conversations that you detached a little bit from the church. Yeah. You, you stepped away. Was that an all-in-once? Was it over time? There was, there was some back and forth for a few years, starting when I was still at BYU. Uh, uh, some periods of, of uh, not living all the laws of the gospel. Yeah. Chastity, in particular. <laughs> it's good that you said that so yeah. low. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want the kids to hear. The password is chastity. <laughs> Um, yeah, so you had, so sort of went off the wagon there, and then would come back and feel remorse, and come back and did the back yeah, and forth in and sure. out for a, for a few years. Uh, like I said, starting when I was still at BYU, and then going after that as well. And then in in two thousand two was where uh, was when I sort of gave up. Yeah, uh, and I don't. I, there wasn't any. It wasn't any particular thing. There'd been some recent setback or disappointment or something, and I just sort of, eh. And then I, I happened to to run into somebody I knew, and anyway, uh, and I'd already by that time sort of stopped going to church very often. Yeah, uh, sort of s- slipping away. And then I, yeah, at that point, I just sort of said, okay, enough. Nothing against the church. Like I didn't, I didn't not believe it anymore, but right. I didn't, I didn't want to live it. And so I, instead of going crazy, going back and forth, I'm just going to detach myself from Step it. Step away. And uh, yeah, and I didn't like I didn't I didn't become an enemy to the church or anything like that. Um, and I would stick up for the church when it came up, but I just I was I was staying away from it. Yeah, I think it's important for the audience and for all of us to recognize that chastity in the gay community is very different from chastity in the hetero community. In that. You can break the law of chastity in the hetero community, mm-hmm. and that relationship can end up 
in eternal marriage. That's true. In the gay community, there's not the same path out. Those relationships, by nature, have to end in order for that path to open up. It's a very different... Yeah. It's it's much harder to keep one foot in each... Right. Yeah. And and someone... Like a a single member of the church who's heterosexual and who has to remain celibate... uh, you know, that's difficult, but at least they can, you know, look forward to one day meeting the right person and getting married, et cetera. Right. Whereas if you're gay, you have to yeah. not do it, but you're not even so supposed to even look forward. Like, what do you, you don't have yeah. something to, to look forward to there particularly. There's sort of a vaguely defined, well, it'll work out somehow. Yeah. Which is, I, I mean, I, I say that flippantly, but that's what it comes, that's my whole theology comes down to that. It really is. is it'll, it, it'll, it'll work out somehow. And how will it work out? I don't know. It's not my problem. I'm yeah. not the one who made the promise. But uh, if you die before your journey's through, happy day all is well. <laughs> happy I mean, day. You have to really all believe well. that. I mean Yeah, I, I yeah, and that's that's what it comes down to for me is that I, I you know, I believe in the in the gospel and I know the church is not perfect and is run by people who aren't perfect because nobody's perfect. Right. Um but that doesn't make the church not true. Like right. the mistakes the church makes or mistakes the church made in the past. Like, none of that changes the fact that, that there was the angel Moroni and the first vision and the plates in it. Like, all that happened. It's just great perspective. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't yeah. retroactively change that. Sure. And so, you know, I, that's, it's sort of like, I'm, I'm in the market for eternal life, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the only shop that carries it. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Yeah, just because I don't like the business hours. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. just, sure. to, yeah. So, so that's, yeah. that's what it comes down to for me. So, talk about the path to come back. You spent these years in Portland, mm-hmm. brilliant writer, you know, and then it's suddenly, how does this lead to a path to come back to church? Well, uh, in 2003, I had, I had started uh, taking medication for depression, finally got diagnosed for depression. Um, this was at a time where, I, I, uh, to, to a casual observer, there would have been some very obvious reasons why I was depressed. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, anyway, but medication helped and even being out and made things a lot better. And then uh, I moved to Portland. And then 2009, so after about six and a half years of faithful service, my antidepressant just quit working. Hmm. Uh, and, and it doesn't usually happen this way. But in my case, it, like I'd know the day that it stopped working. Really? Yeah. It just, I woke up that day. It was a Monday, two days before my 35th birthday. And I just, I felt out of sorts. I felt kind of hungover, which I was not. Mm. I was never much of a drinker. Uh, but that's, it, that's what it felt like. I felt uneasy. And then over the next couple of days, it got worse. And uh, by the end of the week, it was a full-on depression episode. Just the worst I ever felt in my life. Just the, 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 just the worst. And, and I don't even know what second place, but it's not even close, whatever it is. Um, and, and so I, uh, I saw a doctor and, and got a new prescription for new medication and, you know, took care of, of that side of it. But I also, in, in, in all that despair, I, I, I came to realize that this is the Lord trying to get my attention. And, uh, I have to be careful when I talk about this because I don't want to give, I don't want to give the impression that depression is a punishment for your sins. Um, right. Because that's not fair. Because for sure it's not. It's not, yeah. However, depression in this case, can be used. Yeah. In this case, this yeah. is, that was what he used. He could have, I mean, he'd already had me lose my job. I'd already lost my job. And I remember specifically when the spirit nudged me and I ignored it. 
and then lost the job. So he'd already tried other things to get my attention. Um, but apparently, I'm stubborn. <laughs> so he had to bust out the nuclear option uh, and destroy me with depression. And I, I came to realize that that's, that's, that was a, a component here. And, uh, and so, yeah, I started, I started wanting to, to come back. Because what, I remember what my thinking was, I was lying there miserable, uh, just miserable. And I, and I was thinking, I, I just, I just want to be happy. How can I be happy? And my mind flashed back to the, the primary, the Sunday school answers. How can you be happy? Well, read your scriptures, say your prayers, go to church. Those answers just like automatically popped in my head. And I was like, well, those are dumb answers. But then also, well, I'm not doing any of those things. Like, and it, and it, I realized, well, I mean, <laughs> I've known since I was a sunbeam that, yeah. that you, you can't be happy really for very long without doing at least some of these things. Right. And so yeah. how could I expect to be happy if I wasn't even, it just, it seems so obvious and basic. And so I was like, oh, well, son of a gun. So I, I cracked open the Book of Mormon and, and uh, sort of gradually went from there. I had, I had met my bishop before. He had actually come to my apartment a couple months earlier, just as I was an inactive person in the ward. Um, and so I, I knew him, I'd met him. And so I called him and uh, yeah, it, it, went from there it's you know more more elaborate than that but that was the gist of it i i, I went to church in the in the middle of the, the depression uh i remember labor day weekend i dragged myself out of bed on the sunday and put on a shirt <laughs> and uh all my uh white shirts had shrunk i couldn't button the top button on any of them i don't know what so happened weird yeah, over time that happens over time it happens, i had yeah. that experience <laughs> uh but went out to the church to go to like the first time i had voluntarily walked into church in in several years and nobody was there because it was state conference oh my gosh and i, I was, was like are you kidding me <laughs> but I, why can't it be easy but i gotta say uh props to the lord that was well played yeah good good yeah. on him i had that coming i deserve that yeah that's um, hilarious this is the next week i uh i came back and uh yeah i when i when i first came back to church i i had been disfellowshipped before um so that was still the status that i had um and that that remained in place uh for a couple of years and so in the meantime i was i was active in the in the ward but i couldn't have a calling couldn't really do anything and so that was kind of frustrating because yeah. i also it's kind of limbo and i couldn't like or didn't really tell people why I couldn't do anything. Yeah. Um, I did off, uh, under the counter, I uh, played piano for the primary for about a year. That was yeah. great. I love that. Awesome. Love playing primary piano. Um, that's a good crowd. That's a good audience. Those primary kids. They love they it. are starved for entertainment. Then uh, the disfellowship ended and I was able to everything back to normal and take the sacrament and go to the temple, et cetera, et cetera. You spoke in your ward. It was your first time speaking since you were back in church. Yeah. And you stood up and introduced yourself, and then you published your talk on Facebook. And I read it, and you gave the most, the most Eric D. Snyder way of telling your ward that you were gay. Do you remember what you said? I, it was the thing I'm thinking of. I, I, I said that, uh, something like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak in code here for a minute. Yeah. I'm, I'm however old I was, 40-something years old. I've never been married. I don't care for sports, and I love musicals. Yes. <laughs> uh, so read between the lines, but the answer is yes. And then I went on and talked. Uh, Which, yeah, without without actually saying the word gay. 
Yeah, which I think, you know, not that there's anything wrong with saying you're gay from the podium. Sure. But I actually think it's more impactful to say I've never been married, I don't enjoy sports, and I love (laughs) musical theater. If you're asking the question right now, the answer is yes. Well, and also because that way, uh, the people who understood it understood, and those who didn't, that was fine. Because after the meeting, a very very nice old man uh, who looked like the old man in Up. Oh, yeah. Picture him. Very nice old guy, though. Comes up to me and he says... uh, so you like musical theater? I said, yeah. And he goes, I always love that too. And he starts talking about Oklahoma or something. Just starts talking about a musical. Missed the point of what I, what I had meant. And so it was, you know, sort of those who had ears to hear understood what I was telling them. I love it. You were actually like speaking in parables. The, the parable of the music theater. The parable of the music theater lover. That's true. That's the true. single. The single musical theater lover. Um, so somehow this leads to you coming back to Utah. Uh, how long ago did you move back to Utah? I moved back to Utah in September 2019. Okay. And tell us what you're doing now. Well, I came back intending to keep freelancing like I'd been doing. Uh, but then when I got here, um, our friend Aaron Johnston, or Aaron Johnson, as he's sometimes known. I'm pretty sure I said Johnston, but I'll go back. Okay. I could All be right. totally right. wrong. I may have said Johnson. Um, he, I could be wrong. He was working for the church uh, already. So I had a man on the inside, and he told me about this job. They needed someone to, uh, to write content. And ever since I was a kid, I always wanted to write content. People would say, what do you want to write when you grow up? I'd say, content. <laughs> content. If I could write anything. Yeah. The great American novel, no. Content. Yeah. Like, movie reviews were fine, whatever. <laughs> Snide Remarks was fun, but really I wanted to write content. So tell us what you write for. Uh, I write for the Gospel Living app. I, uh, I'm the senior writer for that. It's the app for the youth that just launched uh, about a year and a half ago. I was on the on the initial... Uh, the first team that uh, yeah, wrote and stuff Aaron up. was very involved. Aaron in was that yeah, Aaron process. was my team leader. Uh, he has since been promoted. He's now my grand boss. Yeah, uh, everyone loves him. <laughs> Everybody loves Aaron. You of course can't they do. Not course, love yeah, exactly. Aaron. Everyone, and for our listeners, you can go back and listen to Aaron's episode. But yeah, uh, and yeah, so I'm I'm working on on the app, and uh, I'm very grateful to have a stable job. You know, freelancing was fun, but it very up and down and unreliable and unpredictable. Um, like if, if I'd had a, anyone other than myself to support, I wouldn't have been able to survive yeah. as a freelancer. Uh, so I'm very glad to have something stable and steady and don't have to worry about my boss being bought out by AOL. <laughs> worry about you the checks for, bouncing. You work for a pretty solid organization. Yeah, like your employer not going anywhere. A, yeah, your employer's not going anywhere. Yeah, That's awesome. Yeah. And so now you live back in Utah County. Did you see this 10 years ago? Did you imagine a time 10 or 15 years ago that you would be writing for the church, or working for the church <laughs> back in Utah County? Uh, no, and well, I moved to Portland in 2005, and whenever I would come back and visit, which was a couple times a year, um, I would always wonder, is this going to be the visit where I start to think, oh, I should move back here? But every time it was the opposite. Every time I would visit and think, oh, I remember why I don't live here anymore. <laughs> every time was re reconfirming that. But then about I don't know, four or five years ago, it started to change a little bit. Like one of the visits, it started to started to appeal to me a little bit more, um, and I was starting to have more nieces and nephews here. Yeah, uh, and then there was there was our friend Chris Clark's uh, uh, ALS diagnosis. Yep, uh, and so that became a factor. And I thought, you know, I want to be. Uh, I don't want to miss that. <laughs> I want a front row seat for that. <laughs> I want to see Chris go through. Right. All this. Yeah, but you um, wanted to be here for Chris. Yeah, and, and for Lisa, and and. Yeah, and so that that all kind of began to right. come together, and yeah, at some point, I guess, in, I remember telling a friend, probably in 2016, 
that I was thinking about possibly at some point moving back to Utah. Boy, you should have put in a few more qualifiers. I know, it was, and it yeah. was that was that's how I had to break it yeah, to him. Sure, this was a friend, my uh, a friend of mine who had already moved away from Portland and then moved back, mm. and now I was threatening to move away. Yeah, and uh, so I had to couch it in very gentle terms. Sure, but then 2019, the beginning of the year, I decided, okay, yes, this is happening for sure, and then uh, it worked out, and and there were there were little miracles involved there of, of getting me here. Uh, my financial situation was bad by that time; freelance work was was drying up. Uh, and so, yeah, it just it, it worked out really well with mm. thanks to friends and miracles and whatnot that I ended up here and then stumbled backwards into this job. It's awesome. Yeah. I would say uh, there might have been the hand of the Lord. Yeah. I would at also, least the hand. At the very least, if not uh, like the whole more. forearm, maybe. But, uh, but not only that, but so if we were to sit down right now with Lincoln and with uh, Ken and Lisa and Katie and all of us, mm-hmm. if we were to sit down and we were to say, write down on a piece of paper anonymously, who is the most talented writer among us? It would be 100% Eric Snyder. So I think that if I were looking to hire a writer, I would call you tomorrow. Well, we all, we all, you need to know this. I hope you know this. I assume you know this. We all assume you know this, that we all think you're the most brilliant writer to come out of the Garens. And that's high praise when you think about who has come out of the Garens. Garens there and uh, Darren Tufts. Darren Tufts, who's uh, an incredible writer and movie producer, Mm -hmm. but writes so much corporate film and everything else. Right. By the way, also coming out of your nice little, uh, little group here, the Garens, uh, a slightly well-known uh, musician now in Mike Massey. Oh, Mike Massey, that's right. He was our sound guy and, and did stuff with us. Mike uh, Massey was our stuff. sound guy, did our music stuff. Now, every time he puts out a video on YouTube, it's hundreds of millions of views. Yeah. All this came out of the Garens. I, and so you well, built I, I, something I, lasting. You're, I think you're getting back. I think you're, you're reaping what you sowed many years ago, and you deserve every good thing that's coming to you. Well, thank you. That's, I mean, that's, that's a good way to, to look at it. Um, the, the, yeah, you know, I, I, and, I've, and I've thought about this and recently with, with Ken and Katie's son's wedding. Their son is named Garen. They named him after the Garens because that's yeah. where they met. Um, and so I've been thinking about my, my legacy, as it were. And, and you know, if, if it turns out that I don't have human children in this life, uh, I, I, I like that there's the Garens and, yeah. and I like – and I, it, it is very gratifying to know – to know that there are people like you who think so highly of me, and to know that there are people all over the place who were at BYU when I was, who remember Snyder Remarks every now and then so at, at work. Now we're at the church every now and then. Someone will say, "Oh, you're you're the Eric Snyder, the Snyder Remarks guy." <laughs> so yeah, it's, it. it's it is very nice to know that I that I I've left some kind of impact. And a lot of our Latter Day Lives fans are also fans of the Sharing Time podcast, which would not even exist without you. Well, so so I I. I don't know what to say. Well, it's a beautiful story, and I'm so glad we got to sit down and hear it. And now I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all our guests that I mm. just realized I never prepared you for. But knowing okay. that you are an improv actor, I think you'll do fine with it. We ask all of our guests at the end of every episode, what does being a member of the church mean to you? Being a member of the church, I mean, it means a lot of things, but it, it means a, a sense of security um, that I, I, I know the church will be there. Uh, that whatever else happens in the world or the country or whatever, that the church is is generally a stable influence, 
Uh, I know it may be unsteady sometimes and have problems, but it's not, I know it's not going anywhere. Uh, and so I, I, the church and all that it stands for, the church and the gospel, all that is, is, is its security, uh, sort of knowing that, that it'll be all right, that, you know, things are going to get, things are bad in the world and they're going to get worse, uh, but then they'll get better and they'll get all the way better. Mm. And I, I don't know how people get through life without, without knowing that, without that, some kind of promise of that. So, yeah, it's, it, it means that I, I don't go crazy, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> he is a very talented performer, an incredibly gifted writer, and an all-around good guy. Eric D. Snyder, thanks for sharing your Latter-day Life with us. We My appreciate pleasure. it. Thank you. And my special thanks to Eric D. Snyder for coming over and recording with me. I just loved having him in my home again and catching up with him and hearing his life story was great. You know, as we discussed in the show, we did not cross over during the Garens, so I have not gotten to spend a ton of time with Eric, though we have some close uh, mutual friends and I always feel great kinship with him when I do bump into him, but it was so fun to hear his story. Eric, thank you so much. Uh, This week in my Latter-day life, I am actually recording this right now from a hotel across the street from Disneyland, uh, where I am spending a weekend with my son, Keaton. Keaton is my youngest son. He is 17 years old, getting ready to turn 18 in a few months. And then that's it. I will have no kids under 18. And I think I've shared on this show enough times how much I love Disneyland. It is one of my favorite places in the entire world, and it has been closed due to the pandemic. And then uh, just, what, a month and a half or a couple months ago, they opened it up, but only for California locals. And then uh, on, I think it was Wednesday of last week, they opened it up for people from anywhere to come visit. And I instantly booked us a weekend, and uh, Keaton and I have just had a blast. We've gone on all the rides and... Ah, it has been so much fun. And I love Disneyland. And we had a a fun moment today uh, when we were over at the California Adventure Park at Disneyland. There's a giant bear. It's a statue of a bear. It's carved. I don't know if it's really carved out of wood. It looks like it's carved out of wood. And he's wearing a life jacket. It's by a River Rapids ride. And when Keaton was a very little boy, like in a stroller, For some reason, when he saw that bear, he smushed up his face and started breathing through his nose and made this really funny sound, and we were cracking up. And I mean, we're talking, you know, 15, 16 years ago, a long time ago, and we called it squishy face or smushy face. We call it a little bit of both. And we have a family tradition that every time we are at California Adventure... We stand in front of that bear and somebody makes the the, the smushy face or the squishy face. And sure enough, here we were with my 17-year-old son and he dutifully stood in front of the bear and made that squishy face. And it was so cute and I can still remember when he was a little boy making that adorable face. None of us still know why he made that face. We talked about it today that he has no clue why he did it, but it really was adorable. And so we still do that. 
And in fact, we have a family Snapchat group with the other kids. And of course, I had to share that picture of Keaton because we always do. And we have a lot of family traditions at Disneyland. And it's a special place for us. It's been a special place for me my whole life. I still remember my my parents taking me there and even my grandparents. Uh, I remember going with them when I was really little and we have photos of that. But I've raised my kids going to Disneyland. And now maybe you have a special place. Maybe it's a park or maybe it's a national park or a mountain range. When I was growing up, uh, our family always went to Lake Shasta. That's a very special place to us. And these places become special not just because they're beautiful or scenic or all the amazing things or fun (laughs) that they have to offer, like Disneyland does, but because we bond and we have memories. And today I just feel so blessed to be back. I was so sad when it was closed for the pandemic and so thrilled when it reopened and what a blessing it was to be there. And again, it's not just the fun things that are at Disneyland, but it was getting to spend the day with my son. And what a blessing it was to be there with him. And to think back as I passed by all these rides, all the times I've gone there with friends and family. And again, I have friends who can't stand Disneyland. And that's okay. Whatever your place is that you can go and bond with family members and bond with friends and and really build memories, that's what really matters. For me, the happiest place on earth truly is the happiest place on earth. And that's what's happening in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for uh, joining us again this week. We sure appreciate it. If you know anyone who would enjoy the show, if you could share it with them, uh, that would just mean the world to us. If you do enjoy the show, a five-star review is the number one thing that helps us out, uh, especially on Apple Podcasts. We would really appreciate it. And of course, if you want to reach out to me directly, I can be reached at sean at latterdaylives.com. That's S-H-A-W-N at latterdaylives.com. Well, I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. So go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 